For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. I am Nick, and with us today is an award-winning miniature sculptor, RPG designer, and author of multiple books. Welcome, Robert Charette. Is, is it close? Right. <laughs> yes, I got it. Nailed Happy it. Happy to be here. <laughs> well, I appreciate you stopping by. You you are not an easy person to find, by the way. At least you weren't an easy person for me to find. Uh, I had to find you through a a Facebook page that I wasn't sure was even, you know, were, that you were even a part of because some people have like 60 pages. Uh, so I'm really glad I was able to find you and chat with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. This is exciting. You're kind of a jack of all trades when it comes to the gaming world and mm -hmm. and i mean even more than just the gaming world but you've done many as i said miniature sculpting rpg design uh illustrations you know just the, run the gamut writing novels how did you get into that that genre of stuff well always imagination has been a part of my existence and when I was in college, I was introduced to this new game called Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Which provided a, a way of playing that I had never encountered before, but was full of imagination. Um, and that, that led to trying to work with other people while playing this game and understand where uh, all the characters were and what they could do while because everybody's got a slightly different picture in their head. Right. Um, so we started using miniatures. So there weren't a lot in those day, days, and they certainly didn't represent everybody's characters. So I started sculpting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, a lot of my careers have been one thing leading to another. Uh, and I'm sure you've got some questions for me that will bring up some of those. Yes, for sure. You uh, you said you, you got into D&D &D during college then. So what did you go to college for? Did you go to college for that kind of my, stuff or did you go to college for something else? My degree is in geology and biology. Oh, wow. Uh, any, any particular like specification in those or? Well, my school did not have a degree in paleontology. Okay. So you kind of were aiming for that. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, weren't a lot of jobs for paleontologists in those days. Right. So I fell back on, um, this is all pre-Jurassic Park, mind you. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, fell back on um, my artistic bent and uh, got jobs as a graphic artist back before there were computers to do that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> did you... Uh, sort so of full you... circle. I'm back to doing graphic design again. I'm doing book design and layout for a small press called Freelance Academy Press. Oh, okay. And deals with uh, historical martial arts. That's awesome. Did you always have a, 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 a liking for, obviously you wanted to do paleontology, but like historical martial arts and things like that? Well, as a child, I was fascinated by knights and dinosaurs. So naturally my knight and dinosaur toys kind of got together. Okay. Um, and uh, the martial arts didn't come till college either. But uh, I always wanted to know how knights really fought. So I joined an organization called the Society for Creative Anachronism. Yep, the SCA. Because I thought they might know. Uh, <laughs> and back then, the perceived wisdom was there were no surviving books that covered the topic. I got good at their game, but I didn't learn how knights fought from them. Right, right. <laughs> that didn't come till a couple of decades later. But I help, I bet it helped with the role, with the RPG game stuff, right? 
at least a little bit. It did. It did. <laughs> um, in its own way, right. in its own way. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't specifically accurate, but I had an interest in that kind of stuff. I grew up about an hour away from the John Woodman's John Woodman Higgins Museum in Worcester, Massachusetts, okay. which was the largest collection of armor uh, on the continent. Uh, not all of it was really good stuff, but it was large. Yeah. Um, he was a steel magnet. <laughs> I was rich. I was a huge when I was when I was in a school, middle school, I was I'd get all the medieval armor that I could get. And I was drawing the different types. And I had a his, history teacher <laughs> that was really impressed with the fact that I knew the difference between, you know, a pole arm and a man catcher and, you know, all of those. And I was drawing them out as just a kid, even though he hadn't taught it in class just because I had gotten the books <laughs> for myself. Um, and that yeah. was before I got into, you know, role-playing or fantasy books or anything like that as well. So, yeah. so I understand uh, the, the love for stuff like that. It's just so neat. When did you, so you said you started getting into illustrations and graphic design. How did you go from, you know, a paleontology degree <laughs> to well, illustration? Um, I'd always like to draw. Um, and, uh, as I said, there weren't a lot of jobs for paleontologists, particularly right. without a more advanced degree. To be honest, I kind of uh, got uh, discouraged uh, in my college career because I, um, I had arranged to get an, into an advanced course, uh, normally a graduate course, which would have helped focus what I wanted to do. And I couldn't take it till my senior year because it was only all for alternate years. And that was the year the professor decided to take a sabbatical. Oh. And it kind of crashed my whole plan. <laughs> that sucks. That's a bummer. So, yeah. Well, I moved to another state, got involved in doing um, graphics, as I, I said. Not terribly exciting, but, you know, I had encountered Dungeons and Dragons at that point and the SCA. And there were people down there and, you know, Things developed from there. Yeah. Uh, we started role playing. I was frustrated with the rules, wanted to do different subject matter. So I also started tinkering with rules. Okay. And was that before or after? So you got into uh, a little place called Little Soldier Games, yes? Um, little Soldier Games was kind of important for, for me in a couple of different ways. Uh, I did artwork for them. Um, and uh, the guy who started it, uh, he, he saw some of the miniatures that I had sculpted for the gaming group and, you know, insisted that they were at least as good as the stuff he was selling in his store. Okay. Um, and it was through him I contacted the first company that I, I did miniature sculpting for. Okay. Which was a now defunct operation called Adena Corporation. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about that. Um, and you, for those that don't know, Little Soldier Games was like basically one of the first companies that was would be considered a third party publisher that we have today. Where they, yeah, you know, yeah. they did. I think they did the Largely first, did. the first bestiary. It was like a monster compendium where it was like a bunch of monsters for D and D, even though they mm -hmm. weren't licensed for D and D. So for people that don't know, that's kind of where you know, a lot of this stuff started. I think that was where D&D &D got their idea for let's put a book together called the Monster's Manual was from them. I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm a... Uh, well, I mean, D&D &D spawns monsters regularly and mm -hmm. everybody needs something new to fight. And I think, you know, TSR certainly had their own plans along those lines. Um, but things were kind of formless back then in terms of the, the game industry. It wasn't it wasn't the multi-million dollar industry it is now. And, uh, you know, with a thousand dollars and a, uh, quick print press, you could get into the business. Right. When you, you mentioned the, the Adina Corp, um, miniatures, how did, cause you, you were in, you were doing miniatures for, for a while. How did you see the industry change from starting at the Adina, Adina Corp, all the way down through, you know, doing Battletech and Star Wars and Reaper minis and all that stuff. How did you see, did you see the industry change in that time? Oh yeah, sure. Of course. Um, um, just the, even the materials I was using, 
Uh, I was originally working in a material called Sculpey, which is a thermosetting plastic material that is popular in uh, hobby, hob, uh, dollhouse hobbies and mm -hmm. crafty hobbies. Uh, but it doesn't withstand vulcanization. And Adina started out as a, a jewelry casting operation. So they were used to doing room temperature vulcanizing silicon molds of masters of all kinds of things. So they were able to make molds of what I was working in. Uh, but I had to switch to the uh, what's called green stuff. Um, it's a two-pot uh, epoxy putty okay. for working with other uh, already in the, min the miniature business uh, companies uh, because that withstands vulcanization. And it's a much harder material to work with. Wow. Um, so, you know, you have to relearn it. And then, you know, years later, um, I was part of a couple of sculptors who were talking to the company that made green stuff. Doro was the company. And uh, they wanted to know what sculptors wanted out of the putty. Okay. So I, know, I went to their factory and uh, Julie Guthrie and uh, Sandy Garrity were talking to them on the phone. And uh, they eventually decided they didn't want to produce it. So their, their lead salesman and their lead chemist broke off to their own company and produced it. And now it's called uh, Creata, Creata something? Createx? Anyway, it's a gray putty. Okay. Uh, and much better to sculpt with. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't have the uh, the memory to so, things collapse on itself. For those that Actually, don't, faster. for those that don't do miniature sculpting, because some you know, as far as people know, you make something and then somehow it turns into this multi right. mass of right. you know pewter or whatever right. out there. What is the process? You guys get it and then like sculpt it down with like just little tiny tools, and then it goes to a thing and they make a mold out of it, and then they just mass produce out of a mold. It's or, a little. A little more complicated than that. All right. Um, the, the sculptors in those days were making them the same size that they were going to finally make. More or less, we okay. had to ad adjust because of the process. Um, but when I got started, there were people working in Sculpey like I was. There were people working in wax. Or Tom Meyer is the one who brought the, the epoxy putty into the industry. And uh, I met him at a convention uh, well, I, I was there with Fantasy Games Unlimited and uh, showed him some of my stuff. And he wouldn't believe I had done it in Sculpey um, because, you know, it, that was a material that didn't work well for him. But right. he was awesome with the, uh, the putty. So I started to learn how to sculpt in that <laughs> and uh, never did get into the wax. <laughs> and then they just make out, do they make a mold out of that then? The first part of the process is usually to make a what's called a master mold. Okay. There will be multiple different figures in that. Okay. Um, and they will cast into that mold and put it away. They'll cast enough copies to make a production mold. All right. Again, this is a high temperature vulcanizing system yeah. where they, they put the, the mold material and squish it down over either the sculpture or the, the master figure. And, under high pressure, this stuff is heated till it's strong enough to, to stand up to the, the casting process. Right. Uh, the originals don't always survive that process. <laughs> and one of the other things that happens is it, because it's compressing them this way, the miniatures get squeezed. Oh. So you actually have to figure out what plane it's going to be lying in. Oh, so is that and the reason that some are... the sculpture? Yeah. So you have to have extra whiff, but you got to get it in the right plane. And it's an art. Is that why <laughs> some of the science. is that why <laughs> is that why some of the really old miniatures look a little bit more flat than they do? That's part of it. Okay. Uh, also, a lot of the companies would not go through the master process and preserve them. Okay. And so when they needed a new mold, they throw some of their castings in, and this just compounds yeah, the yeah. problem. Recording on tape, recording on tape, recording on tape until <laughs> you get over the crappy the tape. First, yeah. Some of the first work I did for Ralph Partha was 
taking a master figure and basically building the sculpt back out to compensate. Oh, wow. Did you get to keep any of those originals that you made? Um, yeah, Parthia let us keep our originals and also the stuff we worked on. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I got boxes of them. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so what you're saying is you have a fortune sitting back there. In, in, I don't uh, know if it's a fortune original. <laughs> a couple of years ago, a fellow tracked me down through the same website you did. Okay. Um, and we he wanted to interview me uh, because he was a historian of Battletech. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, so he came, he turned out he was living about an hour and a half away. Oh, wow. So he came out and talked to me. We, I did an interview for him and uh, he eventually started put up the, um, the page that helps sell off some of my Battletech miniatures. I found that page. I saw that page. <laughs> I actually, some of the pictures we have scrolling in our, in our live stream are from that page. I was like, this mm -hmm. is really cool. And so I wasn't yeah. sure if you like got rid of everything or if you kept some of it. So, um, well, um, apparently there was a cabal of fans of that page who, you know, found out I had the original sculptures and mm -hmm. might be willing to part with them. And they made an offer sort of, in bulk and it was like no i don't think so uh, i it just seemed wrong to be selling the originals right. uh, for a far lesser price than painted castings right yeah definitely yeah i mean in in toys you know regular toys when you find original castings they go for 10 times the amount so that that shouldn't be the case mm -hmm. uh especially you know stuff from that era they should be mm -hmm. They, sh they should be valued way higher than that, in my opinion. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a professional <laughs> Well, I collector, certainly, my but... opinion, agreed with you. But... <laughs> well, and you're the professional, so <laughs> you well, would know more than like anyone I... else. Not like I've sold off a lot of my greens. Some of the work I've done was uh, work where they, they, they bought the miniature. Yeah. And that generally is a... Well, it depends on who's buying, right? If it's a really small company, yeah, it might be a win for the sculptor um, because if you take a royalty deal and they don't sell enough, you don't pay for your time. Right. And you got to pay for your time if you're doing it as a business. Yeah, that's a hard, hard sell. How did you know when which, which deal to take? Or was it just <laughs> cross your fingers um, and hope? Yeah, it wasn't always the right choice, but, uh, you know, a lot of times to keep it interesting, you want to you want to sculpt interesting things. You don't want to sculpt the same thing over and over yeah. again. Well, and you and, did so many different things. Um, yeah. Because you, uh, you did like an Old West one, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you do an Old West, a gun? No. Gun something? No, that's, that's one genre I didn't get to. Okay. <laughs> See? See, there's the, like, this is the, what I said about the internet being wrong. I, I mentioned that earlier before we went live. Uh, actually, I don't know if I actually saw that anywhere. I was just <laughs> off the top of my head. For some reason, I had a picture of that. But you did, a, well, you did some Star Wars you, runs. You might have gotten confused because I did some art for Fantasy Games Unlimited Wild West game. Ah, maybe that is what it was. There's so much stuff. Like I said, there's so much stuff out there that you had done. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. And you had mentioned Battletech. Um, you did mm -hmm. some Star Wars miniatures, correct? Uh, Julie Guthrie and I did the first uh, gaming scale Star Wars miniatures and for Grenadier. Okay. Uh, and that was around the same time West End Games was doing their RPG, right? It was um, around the same time was, frame? It was just before that. Okay. Um, because, you know, we were doing them as part of a direct license. Well, I think maybe, maybe it was through West End. I know eventually West End bought the line. Okay. Um, and uh, added to it. And they, for the people listening, when we mentioned the game, Ral Partha, um, Ral Partha mm -hmm. is now owned and is run by WizKids. Uh, no, it isn't. It is not. I, th I could have swore that it was. No. All right. It was for Ralph a while. Okay. It was for a while. Did they get bought but, back or uh, something? What happened there? You know, one of the original owners and a fellow who was a factory manager and a couple of other people that I'm not entirely clear on put together a consortium to buy it back. Oh, see, I didn't, I didn't catch that part. Well, and, I was kind of right. <laughs> yeah. And most of the, the 
the folks involved with that have got their their own thing going okay. and uh, so one of the guys who was connected to that who ran some kickstarters for them for the legacy figures is now got the rights to all the old Ralph Partha figures and is adding to that you know he he bought bought it out from them so the Ralph Partha legacy is a thing and uh, yeah I did some sculpts for him recently because he's planning on expanding it. Okay. It's focusing it around a project that I was involved in with when I was with Raul Partha. Okay. Uh, they wanted a, a quick and easy game that they could run at conventions. And they had been doing a version uh, for their historicals. And I, I, I basically did a fantasy version of it um, called the chaos wars. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I had no idea that they, and because I had seen that they still had stuff that was coming out, but I just assumed it was under the still under the WizKids title. So I just thought that they were like, "Well, here's the name. We're yeah. going to use the name." So that's good to know. Good to know. What is the point at which? So we talked about you build the mini and you sculpt it, and it gets you know pressed and goes out there. Do you enjoy going out and were you seeing your stuff on the shelf and going, "Hey, I made that," and how was that for you <laughs> to see your own to see your own stuff on on shelf? Uh, yeah, I you know it's it's great. To see people using it and enjoying it, um, I, you know, to be honest, I cringe sometimes at some of the paint jobs. But you know, people do the best they can, um, and if they're happy with it, that's what, that's the good part, right? Right, definitely. Uh, do you pay attention to when they come out with like a BattleTech video game or, you know, a, a, a Shadowrun cell phone game? Ooh. Do you get a kick out of any of that stuff, or do you pay attention to it? I. I don't really pay a close attention to it. You know, things will come to my attention now and again, but um, you know, it's been so long since I touched a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and and moved in. You know, both those games, I had some involvement in the backstory, uh, and they the company moved. Companies at this point have moved the storylines in ways that well might not have been my first choice and you know when you're deeply connected to laying out the groundwork for somewhere like i was with Shadowrun, that's doesn't always leave you in the happiest place when you yeah. see you know characters who would never do a thing in your mindset doing something in the, the storylines it eh. becomes difficult no it's not a lot of fun yeah, and I get that. Uh, we've had we had Ed Greenwood on. I don't know if you know Ed at all, but he uh, he says I know, you know uh, he mentioned I know the name. I don't think I've ever met him. He did a lot of Forgotten Realms. Well, he he's the guy who made Forgotten Realms, and he wrote Elminster and stuff. And so oftentimes he's like, "Well, I mean, it's I wrote it and I created it, but I don't own it. So whatever mm -hmm. they do with him isn't up to me." And it to me it seems like that's got to be a hard pill to swallow. Sometimes it's like I did create something, but it's you know. So I get I. I I can understand, you know, from a third party point of view, how that's got to be difficult. Uh, it's harder with some than others. Uh, but, uh, you know, you sign a contract going in, knowing that you're doing uh, essentially work for hire right. uh, on the design work that you do on that. And, you know, it's not like I didn't get anything out of it. Right. Um, you know, they paid. There's the... Um, the uh, limited limited fame of a small pond uh, <laughs> and uh, just the the enjoyment of of doing it um, and when we were chatting before we went live i mentioned that i've done a couple of other interviews in the relatively recent past yeah and for a couple of them i, I actually went back and reread some of my novels oh okay and, you know so you know they and in some ways the thing that makes me feel good about it is you know, I'd still read them. <laughs> um, you know, I you hear a lot of people talking about the things they wrote, you know, decades ago and how awful they are. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, I can see things I would have done differently now. Yeah. But it's not now. Right. And, um, you know, with the novels, what's more important is the overall, the overall feel of them and, and what they inspire. Um, I mentioned uh, the fellow who helped me with the, selling off the battle max, um, Michael Todd. And, uh, he insisted I read a couple of books uh, <laughs> that had come out. Um, uh, 
both of which dealt with Wolf's Dragoons. Okay. Um, which uh, I was, well, I was given the assignment to do the first novel that featured them. Okay. So a lot of the early stuff on Wolf's, Wolf's Dragoons, I filled in. And it was very clear those guys were paying strict attention <laughs> to what had come before. Well, that's good. Um, that's good. That was nice when you have somebody that comes in afterwards and like does honors and makes sure that they try to stay. That's what I always say about movies. You know, when, when a movie, they do a comic book movie, it's like, did the, did the create sometimes did the creator even look at the source material or did they just like, <laughs> I want to do my yeah. own thing. Let's make sure that let's put Superman in a, he won't wear a cape. I'm like, well, and Superman's kind of got to have a cape. That's he's Superman, <laughs> you know, no red S no, no big S on his chest. Well, so, well, you know, yeah. you can make the argument that the character is the character, not what he wears. Um, and I, I know that's a little bit closer. What I'm talking about is when the character doesn't act like the character. Right. right. I was just uh, saying more of a sure. easy, simple sure. example. But yeah, but I totally get it. These are large uh, intellectual properties that have long lifespans. Right. And the audience changes for them it's inevitable that they're going to change and they're not going to satisfy everybody. Yeah. Well, and the world changes around it. And yeah, I get mm-hmm. that. Well, we're talking a little bit of, you know, we're talking about the novels. Uh, how did you get into actually <laughs> designing RPGs? Cause you did Bushido as you've got by yeah. the amazing shirt you have on uh, and aftermath. No involvement with Pathfinder. Sorry. I didn't. I, did I say Pathfinder? Yeah, I thought I said Bushido. That's what I heard anyway. Oh, I, I, I thought I said Bushido. I'm hard of hearing, so maybe I missed. I thought I said Bushido, the shirt that you got on. Yeah, well, you said Bushido. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, anyway, um, how did I get involved with it? Well, yeah. I was I started playing the games, and uh, I think mentioned got dissatisfied with some of the rules and wanted to do other backgrounds. And uh, you know, so I started creating my own place, and uh, one of my players was Paul Jung. And he made the comment one day that the mechanics reminded him a lot of Japanese martial arts. That one thing led to another, and uh, we decided we would write a Japanese one because nobody had at that point. And uh, so the, he was supposed to do the background, and I was supposed to do the game mechanics. And uh, I got more and more interested in the background and ended up doing at least as much as he did. Um, he concentrated on the magic system. I pretty much did everything else. Okay. Um, I, Paul's big into magic systems. You know, he did the magic system for Shadowrun too. The original one. I mean, yeah. Shadowrun's changed several times. Right. Since I think the they're on their edition. Fifth, fifth edition right now, uh, sixth edition. Mm-hmm. What was your yeah. involvement? Uh, on Shadowrun, how did you get in? Were you like a, a core creator? Because there, there's kind of two, two. We talk about online being wrong. There's kind of two different mm-hmm. things out there that mm-hmm. I see. Some of them are, you know, somebody else, a couple people created it, and you kind of came in, kind of near the beginning. Other is that you were there from the get go. Um, <laughs> Let's. Uh, I was there before it was Shadowrun. Uh, I was in Chicago for a meeting with the Fossa crew, and uh, we were out at dinner and Jordan Weissman raised the conversation. Okay. What's going to be the next big thing? You know, cause they were looking for another property. Right. Um, and uh, this was back in the eighties. So, and so in terms of properties that were different at the time, I suggested cyberpunk. Um, this was before uh, Mike Pondsmith did his cyberpunk was out. Right. Um, and uh, Jordan wasn't too sure about that. So shortly thereafter, he came back with another pitch. It's like, okay, can do Shadowrun. I'm assuming you're not going to do cyberpunk, but there's magic too. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they wanted to work with me. There's a backstory to that too, but they wanted to work with me on a game. And also they needed people who were not totally overwhelmed with handling battle tech stuff. Right. So uh, it ended up that uh, uh, I was commissioned to take the lead on the design and put together a core team 
to flesh out some of Jordan's basic ideas and, and make them work in a game uh, and in a game world. Uh, and uh, uh, I agreed to do it, but I had a condition besides the usual payment. Okay. And that was, I would get to write the first novels. Okay. Because even then it was very clear that the novels were a way of expanding the world and making the world clearer to the players than any game material can be. Right. And, and you know, the gaming supplement material and stuff, there's, there, there aren't characters in those really yeah. character ideas, but they don't, you know, you don't get the interactions. You, you don't get the, the same kind of feel of the world as you follow a character through yeah. the personalities. Not just, not just the personalities of the characters, but the personality of the world. Yeah. Yeah. What is it supposed to feel like? And then that I thought was really important to convey in this crazy world that, you know, was magical cyberpunk stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was it was as much of a crazy mishmash as you know, forty k was when it was originally showed up. And you know, we I was at Jordan's place as part of a conference to flesh things out. And said, what are we going to call this thing? <laughs> you know, it's it's got magic. It's got cyberpunk. We need a name. And so I suggested Shadowrun. And he's like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's like, well, tell them what it means. Yeah. You want to tell our listeners what it means? created what a Shadowrun was. Yeah. And that encapsulated everything that needed to be encapsulated for the game world while still having a cool sound. Yeah. For our listeners that don't know, would you like to explain to them exactly what a shadow run is? <laughs> okay. Well, like I said, it's, you know, it's a mix up of magic and cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. So we cast for the primary roles for the players that they would be people who are outside the system. And they would be the foes of the entrenched capitalistic mega corporations. Mm -hmm. And a shadow run is an uh, under under the table, undercover operation to uh, achieve a goal uh, that could easily be simple corporate espionage. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, now we wanted we wanted the the players to be rebels, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know fight the system because the system was corrupt. Yeah, you know it was inherently built to be corrupt <laughs> and there were a lot of different ways to do it you could and so it was we came up with a scientific pseudoscientific method to bring elves and orcs yeah into the world and uh, the uh, there would be deckers who went into cyberspace and riggers who ran drones and uh Street samurai who had, you know, cyberware and weapons. Uh, it was a real throw everything in there kind of thing, and it it needed explaining. <laughs> and now half of the stuff is real in the real world. You got drones um, and cyberspace yeah. and hacking. Well, you know, we were doing this back in the day, and we made some some decisions. Um, you know, like a lot of people harassed us early on about, you know why do you still have to jack in? Why isn't it wireless? Because wireless has terrible security. Right. <laughs> and for people who are extremely security conscious, they don't want to be connected to something that's connected to everybody else. Right. And, <laughs> and I mean, gee, looking at it now, do we not have security problems now when everything's right. wireless. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, somebody has got a wireless thermostat. Next thing you know, someone hacks into their house and unlocks all their doors. It's all because it was impossible. wireless. It's not impossible. Um, when you were when you were writing the novels for something like Shadowrun and you know BattleTech or any of those, how much of the game system did you make sure to put into the writing? So if you know, if in D and D terms, if somebody throws a fireball and it's you know twenty feet wide, and you need this spell component. Do you put that in the story when you're writing the book, or are you just telling a story and forget about the system? Um, for me, the story was first. Okay. Um, but the two universes were a little different. Uh, Battletech already had a huge player base. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and it's very much a combat game. Yeah. Um, and describing the combat in Battletech is boring. <laughs> if you just describe the whole thing because it's repetitive right. and, you know, it's all in terms of numbers. Um, so I always tried to, you know, use all the correct terms, but described it from a visual point of view rather than a game point of view. Yeah. And I've read Battletech ones that like, okay, I know what he rolled here <laughs> because the author is describing it because he's basically transcribing a game <laughs> and they're no fun. Right. <laughs> they're boring with Shadowrun. It was a little bit different because among other things, the game system was designed to skew things sometimes where it blew apart the, the, the mechanicalness of the normal part of the game system. Okay. So effects could be wildly different from what would typically happen in the game. And it was a little, it was, it was designed to be a little bit more narrative a game right. than Battletech was. Battletech was very much a, a miniatures tabletop game. Uh, the role-playing stuff for that universe was very much a, you know, subsequent bolt-on. Right. Um, and, you know, we had to toe the line a lot more on that because they had preconceptions. And, you know, that led to some interesting discussions. Um, and because, you know, we talked about it being a, a, an IP that has lasted for a long time, is some of the stuff I was told I couldn't do when I started writing the Battletech books. Now it's all over the Battletech universe. <laughs> yeah. Did you find yourself going, did you go from, you know, when it comes to Battletech, did you go from sculpting miniatures to writing, writing, doing the books, or did was it the other way around? <laughs> Battletech, of course, my involvement in Battletech preceded Shadowrun, obviously. Um, and it's a, con a slightly convoluted tale, and it involves all of those things. <laughs> I went with Ralph Partha to the convention where Vasa premiered Battle Droids, which mm -hmm. was the original edition. And I, you know, this circles back around to knights and armor and stuff, because these guys are in machines that they're running like giant suits of armor. Yeah. Except they got ranged weapons. Um, you know, so I've always been fascinated by the concept of powerful machinery controlled by people. Yeah. So I thought this was a cool idea. <laughs> and yeah. I had already been collecting some of the uh, inspirational mecha um, that Battletech was using in their original designs, just because I liked the, the graphic design of them. Mm -hmm. So we came, came back from that convention knowing that Fossil was looking to have a miniatures line. And Chuck Crane, one of the owners, and I were the, the ones who were pushing hard to get Ralph Partha involved with Battletech. Okay. Didn't know who would do it. And Fossa at that point were thinking about working with a miniature company that specialized in vehicles. And, so, and they said, can, can you guys even do this? And so we had to do a proof of concept and I did that. Okay. So I was involved, I guess, first with the miniatures, right? And uh, as that relationship developed, um, there started to be noise about um, perhaps Fossil didn't actually have permission to use those designs. Okay. It's a very complicated situation. So the Ralpartha uh, leadership got a little bit of cold feet. So we, we did, I did a whole set of things that had guns in the right places, but didn't look like the anime um, properties. Okay. And those, those came out under battle droids, but then it was clear there was a market for this stuff. So um, we, the company wanted to do some more. So we developed a couple of pieces that um, again, in one, in a couple of cases, didn't quite look like the things. Right. Right. Uh, Ju Julie Guthrie was involved with a couple of the earliest of those that later got incorporated into the game. The first Battletech novels had come out. And at a convention, I walked up to Jordan Weissman and said, I hear you guys are, are doing novels now. 
And he was like, who wants to know? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I, 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 I was kind of interested. He said, okay. <laughs> and in short order, I had a contract nice. to write Wolves on the Border, which was featuring Wolf's Dragoons. Okay. Which you mentioned earlier. Well, remember I said all these things tie together. Yep. Fossa started out as a third-party publisher, mm-hmm. and they were putting out support for Traveler, a science fiction role-playing game primarily. But they also contacted Paul and I about doing stuff for Bushido. Okay. <laughs> Jordan liked Japanese stuff and uh, knew I was into it. He liked Bushido. And, of course, one of the great houses in the Battletech universe is very heavily influenced by uh, traditional Japanese culture. Right. So they, he thought I was the perfect fit to write House Karita. Nice. So he took a shot on me, <laughs> and uh, I turned my novel in on time, and it went through editorial faster than anything had up to that point. <laughs> good. It's a good thing, right? It was pretty good for somebody's first novel. <laughs> right, right. And I'm sure that, that was exciting because they had you I, come back for more books, right? They did. They did. And I'm told to this day it's widely considered the best standalone Battletech novel. I'm sure there are yeah. plenty of fans that completely agree with that statement. Um, well, I mean, other people have their, their own opinions. Um, but it was... It was kind of edgy, ultimately, uh, for the time. I got a story sorry, related to that, too, because I had planned the ending, and I figured that, that Fossa would never go for it. So I, I switched it, and after reading through the novel, Jordan came back and said, you know, it shouldn't end this way. It should end another way, which was the way I had originally expected it to end. Nice. And so, so you were able to get that? We went ahead with the original plan. That's exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. And and it makes a better book. Now, Uh, these stories aren't the only, like, you didn't do just tie-in fiction stuff. You had... um, Correct. You had, and and it's kind of Shadowrun-esque from the way it looks. I haven't read it. Um, But tell me about the the Johnny Reddy, um, The Prince Among Men series. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, the whole idea of fantasy intruding in the modern world was already a thing, mm-hmm. uh, fiction-wise. Uh, and, of course, we were bringing that into Shadowrun. And uh, I was certainly very heavily influenced by a, a series, share, shared world series called Borderlands in terms of the, that idea. Yeah. There's... Now another thing called Borderlands, which is not what I'm talking right, about. Right, yeah, that's, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, so the original publisher who was working with Fossa, the guy who bought the Fossa material mm-hmm. moved. He, he switched companies. Okay. And Fossa had used my books as proof that they had something other than jump game writers writing books. So when he moved... He wanted books from me. Okay. Right? So he he wanted to take me with him. Yeah. Um, And he wanted something, you know, vaguely like that. So, you know, it was going to be an urban fantasy intruding into the modern world, but not in the Shadowrun way. And, you know, it wasn't full of mega corporations and uh, uh, really depressing urban sprawls. Right. (laughs) So I, I brought I brought Arthurian stuff into that mix, and uh, I went on. I did a, a fantasy series as well uh, for him that uh, just didn't take off. But that actually was uh, based on the original uh, fantasy role playing world I had done. That led Paul Hume to say, "The system you're using is reminding me of Japanese stuff." Oh. <laughs> Do you remember what what series that was? So was that the a different the one? Chronic, the Chronicles of Aelwyn. Okay, that was going to be the next one I was going to ask you about. A E L W Y N. I was going to ask you about that one. How do you? I was going to say, how do you go from 
you know, the, the sci-fi modern-esque to a full-on fantasy, but you've already answered that question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you, that, that had more than one book, didn't it? That was three books. Yeah, so it, it couldn't have done too bad if you got three books out of the dang well, thing, Well, right? it was a contract for three. Oh, okay. um, And like a lot of trilogies, sales tail down. Okay. And with the book industry having gone over basically to computerized ordering, they always base their orders on the previous sales. Oh. So it automatically tails down. Right. And this not great. I even did a couple of books in a science fiction universe. But at that point, because of that phenomenon, I had to write under a pseudonym because oh. it, it was not going to have a chance of uh, breaking into good sales. Yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, I want to switch gears because there's something that's sure. not gaming related necessarily, but it's still really freaking cool in my opinion. And we talked earlier <laughs> about the love for, you know, medieval weapons and things like that. You came up with a book, the chivalric martial arts system. Um, it's, it's, it's got, it's got a, it's, that's not the core name of it, but I don't think I could properly pronounce it <laughs> when I read it. So yeah, I'm like, um, people can Google that and find it. It's like M M is I tell me how it's pronounced because I have it's, no. It's Fiore de Liberi's Armazari. It, it uh, is the the title of the book. Mm-hmm. You were pulling up the subtitle. Yes. Uh, oh, I, I yeah. saw the full name. I just knew I couldn't pronounce it, so I'm like, I'll go with this title. Yeah. And <laughs> no, it's it's a study of the uh, teaching system that's encoded in an early 15th century book written by an Italian swordmaster by the name of Fiori de Liberi. Uh, and it is the oldest European tradition book that covers it, all the knightly weapons and is illustrated. So, you know, it covers wrestling, it covers dagger, it covers sword, it covers spear, it covers poleaxe, it covers it on foot, and it covers fighting on horseback. I personally don't do horseback fighting, but <laughs> I just do the foot stuff. Right. And you do a lot of stuff with that. Cause I've seen you have, you go to like symposiums and stuff where you have in the past done events where you, that's what you do. Yeah. The last couple of years, not so much, not so much. Well, not much. This of is a, a lot of close contact stuff. Not the thing you want to do in a COVID environment. Right. Exactly. Uh, but that's still really awesome. I mean, a lot of the pictures of you out there are in your armor. Uh, yes. Is that something, did you have someone else make it or did you, so for those that are listening, <laughs> no, let me backtrack need, a bit. You need, you need a professional to make good armor that works for you. Okay. Um, I have, uh, as I've mentioned to you off, off podcast and off stream. Uh, and a lot of the listeners know I used to perform at Renaissance festivals. I know a lot of the guys mm-hmm. out there and a lot of them will order their weapons and armor and stuff, but they'll go out there and they'll either, kind of have a script when they go out there and then fight, but they still kind of have to know what they're doing. Like, and they have, you know, you have to be a squire and they're the ones helping the horses and putting the armor on and mm-hmm. off. And then eventually they become a performer. And then I have uh, not only people I know, but a, a friend of mine from high school does Renaissance festivals and they actually have contests where, you know, that's, it's one guy versus another guy and they fight till I think they score points or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I got to imagine that, you've crossed paths with some of these types of folks in, in either it's from your book or from these symposiums and things like that. Um, do you have any insight to maybe those realms? <laughs> well, um, realms is a good way to put it because there are, there are a lot of variations on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you described from the people, you know, a couple of versions um, what I do is different still. Okay. It's not choreographed. All right. There are rules, however. <laughs> right. And uh, normally our, um, our fights are run under the kind of rules that medieval deeds of arms were run under, which is um, there may be a set number of blows. Okay. Um, by which we take to mean a successful technique uh, or a victory condition, uh, such as throwing your opponent to the ground and not going with him. Okay. 
um, taking him out the gate of the list. And these were real, these last two are real medieval victory okay. conditions. Nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm one of the oldest guys doing this stuff. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's what I joined the SCA to learn to do, to, to understand that and fight like that. And the book I wrote is, a, a, you know, I wrote it primarily to be uh, an explanation of how the medieval manuscript teaches this art. Okay. But it has practical uh, examples of recreating this art. Yeah, so, you know, I've been involved in running several symposiums specifically for armored versions of the art uh, because it covers both armored and unarmored. Um, I'm not fast enough anymore to keep up with the younger guys out right. of armor. <laughs> but but armor you still know what to does tell its them. Job. But you still know, even, mm -hmm. even with that, you mm -hmm. still you, having the knowledge doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it. People can people can teach even if they're not capable. So you know True. even if at some point and you can't do any of it, you can still say your your feet are wrong or your shoulders off or you know whatever, yeah. Yeah. and explain what they're doing wrong. Uh, so I mean, either way, the knowledge is invaluable, and the fact that we talked earlier that you wanted to get this information and you couldn't find it, and then here mm -hmm. you're talking about this. 15th century book that sounds like it kind of was a hard thing to find. And here you've kind of well, brought it into more of a modern light for people to read. There, there are several surviving copies of this particular one. Okay. One of them is incomplete. Um, and one of them is a, an edition done after the author's death. So four of them. And uh, they weren't widely known uh, until like the nineties. And a friend of mine managed to track down where one that had been in a private collection had been bought by the Getty Museum. Okay. And he got a, a microfilm copy of it. And that's when I was first introduced to it. Um, but I was frying other fish at that time. So it didn't take my focus. And about 10 years later, I got seriously interested in it. Okay. And kept waiting for other people who were teaching the system to write their books and then they didn't and they didn't and they didn't <laughs> so i i wrote mine yeah and the cover looks amazing by the way i every time i see it i was like god that looks really cool is, is that you and all the in those some of those pictures yeah i i'm the 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 one who usually plays the master okay in the the pictures and uh i have a different partner, whether it's armored or unarmored, because okay. not everybody has armor. Right. Uh, yeah, I also laid the book out. <laughs> nice. Well, for and, people that are listening, they can go on our Twitch page and there's a guest products. They can go down and click on that, at uh, least for the next two I weeks. Don't know, do, you, do you have the link to Freelance Academy Press? Uh, I don't have it on me right now, but I'm sure one of my moderators. I mean, on your, on your, on your the page you were speaking of. Yeah. The reason why I mentioned that is that it's a small publisher. And while it is available through Amazon, Amazon takes a deep cut and okay. small publishers need all the help they can get, particularly when they're doing exotic material, like historical European martial arts. Um, you know, they need all the pennies they can get. <laughs> well, we will make sure uh, in anybody that's in the live stream, uh, one of the mods just got the link up for the Freelance Academy Press for us. Uh, I will update our website at Epic. Uh, it's epicrealmsmedia.com. And I will put the link in there as well, along with uh, the other, the Amazon link to all of your other products as well. So we will definitely, um, yeah. we'll definitely get that out to everybody so that they can get, it can go straight to the Freelance Academy Press and Amazon doesn't take their, their uh, crazy cut of doom and destruction that they like to throw in their pocket and then shoot rockets off into space with it. Uh, <laughs> you are not necessarily a social media person. Uh, you do have, you mentioned that you are dabbling a little bit into YouTube, but not really full into it. So is there anything else you have coming up that you, other symposiums, other events, products, something you're working on that you want people to know about? Yeah, uh, there's a couple up? of things. Um, we hope, assuming pandemic conditions uh, allow it, to have another one of our chivalric fighting arts symposiums 
in May. Uh, that one will be in Kansas, uh, near uh, Kansas City. Okay. Um, I, the, it's being hosted physically by, uh, oh gosh, they just changed their name. They used to be the Kansas City Medieval Swordsman's Guild. And they have a website that uh, has the, the registration. It's, al- it's already booked. Okay. Uh, so they have a waiting list running. All right. All right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'll be theoretically doing that in the, the spring. Okay. And uh, ongoing as a project to get a line of miniatures I had been doing independently with you know people doing the casting for me called Parum Station miniatures okay uh most of which is victorian science fiction stuff um so uh, uh, a little bit of uh, the same sort of things that inspired space 1889 if anybody remembers that old game okay and uh, a little bit of uh you know steampunk and uh sorts of things like that well that's uh, huge that's a huge genre that people love and i don't think there's enough enough stuff from that genre out there for people to consume so that's <laughs> that's a great place to put that um yeah well you know i i ran that for a dozen or more years and uh, a couple of different companies working with and finally had to pull the plug on the last one because they weren't reporting to me <laughs> oh wow well, here's crossing fingers that, that 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 comes out sooner rather than later for you. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, when that comes out, you let me know and we'll have you come back to just we'll just talk about that and maybe we can do just a live stream and show people the uh you know what you know figures or whatever and, and promote it. And so we will keep in touch on that and we'll have hopefully have you yeah. back for that. <laughs> yeah, my my life is a little preoccupied right now as we're preparing for <laughs> selling our house and, and moving to a new one. Right. Yeah. You mentioned that earlier off stream and that's, uh, as I said, that's the num- probably the number two thing I hate more than anything besides washing dishes is moving. <laughs> so I, I get that. I can understand that. <laughs> we, you know, we, we've moved several times. Uh, and uh, every time it's like, call the movers. It's like, we have a lot of books. You need to come out and check it. Oh, no, no, we'll just make, no, you got to come out and see it. <laughs> they come out and say, you have a lot of books. It's like, you haven't seen them all yet. Um, and uh, they invariably underestimate how many book boxes they will be moving. Right. Wow. That's crazy. Well, good luck on the move. Uh, and I want to thank you for stopping in. Uh, I appreciate you being oh, in here. And uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. You're very much welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, listening to the podcast and our live stream members, uh, we will do a short Q&A for the live stream after the podcast is over with. But I do want to mention, guys, January 10th, two weeks from now, we're going to have game designer Seppi Yoon. He is from the company called Fight in a Box. He does Hedgehog Hop, Squirrel or Die, Processing, and so many more board games. So he's going to be with us. He's all over social media. He's got a great personality. We're going to have a great time with him. January 24th, New York Times bestselling author Delilah S. Dawson will be joining us. She wrote the Blood series. She's done a whole bunch of Star Wars novels, Hellboy stories, uh, the Shadow series, and Tales of Pell. So that will be January 24th. She will be joining us. February 7th, we're going to be getting Luke Daniels, who's an audiobook narrator. He's in the Audiobook Hall of Fame. He's got probably dozens of awards for his narration work and audio uh, voiceover work. So we're going to have him. He's narrated more than 450 novels, and he is probably also my favorite narrator of all time. So thank you all for listening. Make sure to rate and review. Uh, That way we get more visibility on us, and the more visibility on us is more visibility for our guests. Thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>